We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you turn there with me in your Bibles, and we're starting in verse 18. I, I don't say this very often, but I believe that this is a portion of Scripture the Lord really wants to talk to us. That means our church about. Uh, it is one of the sections of the letter of 1 Peter that I was waiting in great anticipation of teaching because I believe it is so rich in what Peter is trying to convey and say through these verses. There are three sections to our text today that run from chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 11. This is another example of how we now understand that chapters and verses are not inspired by God. Sometimes they are inserted in places that separate a line or a train of thought that the writer is intending to keep together. And so it's important that you read the Bible and try to overlook the stopping and starting points of the chapters and verses or the, the additional perecopies, those little subheadings over different portions of Scripture. Sometimes they can get in the way of the line of thought and you may stop prematurely instead of continuing to read and allowing the writer to conclude or to climax his point or to give a contrast of some sort. In our example this morning, we are going to see that he is going to stop for a moment in this letter and remind us of our ultimate example that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. Then he's going to bring it to a practical application for the individual and then end the thought in a, a four-verse uh, portion of this text in an exhortation for us all. And so it's stopping at any one of these points would, uh, it would interrupt the train of thought that Peter is trying to uh, convey to us today through this letter. As we stated from the beginning in our series that we've entitled Standing in the Storm, the book of 1 Peter is written to Christians who are suffering under the hand of persecution. As Nero now has uh, waged war against the Christian community, Peter is writing to Christians who are in uh, the outer regions of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. He is trying to encourage these believers who were Jews who became Christians, probably at the time of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, who now find themselves out of Israel and abroad in the, reg the Gentile regions of Asia Minor, separated and isolated and feeling exiled from their homeland. And now being persecuted for their Christian faith, Peter writes this letter to them saying, I want to encourage you to stand in the grace of God, to stand in the storm, that trial, trouble, and tribulation that you are experiencing. And that has been the theme of the letter from the very beginning until the very end. And so this morning we come to the portion of this letter as he is now winding down, he's getting ready to conclude he once again wants to bring his reader's attention back to their example in Jesus Christ, reminding them that Jesus Christ suffered greatly in his short stay here on this earth. And as a result of that suffering, it did not result in a demise, but in a glorification of God. And Peter wants their readers to understand that the suffering that they are experiencing can be used for the glory of God. Suffering is not something that we should look at as an obstacle keeping us from a quality of life, but an opportunity to share the light of Christ to a fallen, darkened world, to show the people around us that even in a moment of suffering, my God has me by the hand and will never leave me nor forsake me, that he is with me and that he is real. And so Peter brings our attention back to the example of Jesus Christ in a message I've entitled Standing in Christ. And we begin with the example of Jesus Christ, which he's already used several times 
in the letter, but now focuses upon uh, specifically to wrap up this train of thought in which he has been uh, building upon and, and now he will climax upon. He will bring us to the reality that the suffering that we have at this moment can be used for the glorification of God. Before we move on any further, I want to state something, and I want you to write this down if you are a note-taker. If you are one who chooses to defile the Word of God by writing in it, then you can write it in there and have to stand before God uh, for that. Um, But that being said, we need to remind ourselves as a church, this is to us right now, Christ is our example in all things relating to life and godliness. Do we not? Let us understand that, right? Christ is our example for everything that's related to life and godliness. He is our example, not the people sitting next to you, not some person in this world. Christ is our ultimate example. It is his example that we should seek to imitate in our life. Paul was one who chose to do such such a thing. And he says, if you're having trouble and you're having difficulty with relating to Christ because you have not interacted with him personally, then he says, follow me as I have followed Christ. Imitate me as I have imitated Christ. Today, however, though, we are choosing to imitate people because we want to lower the standard, we want to lower the bar, and we want to make it more obtainable and more reachable, and even to make ourselves feel better at times if we decide to compare us to, to somebody who's a, a jerk, you know. Uh, then we look pretty good in the overall evaluation, but it is Christ who is our example in all things that relate to life and godliness. The argument that is being now Posed to that uh, statement is this. Well, that is too idealistic. Uh, That standard is unobtainable. He was perfect. He was God. That is a byproduct of our nation trying to dumb down everything else. I would agree with them if it weren't for one significant fact, and that is this that Jesus Christ not only set the standard and the example, he gave you the Holy Spirit to meet it. I'm going to give you the power, the ability, the capability of meeting that standard in me through the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't leave it to us to fulfill on our own. He gave us the Spirit to help us fulfill this. For every believer in Christ... Christ is the example, the ultimate example for everything that relates to life and godliness. And that is the example in which Peter gives us. And he, through verses 18 and 21, he'll start with the crucifixion and he'll tell us six things about the crucifixion that were crucial to our salvation. He then will take us into the tomb with Christ And show us what happened at that moment. And then, of course, climaxing in the resurrection three days later. Then he'll give us an application, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. And then from verses 7 to 11, he gives us an exhortation where all of us as Christians need to abide within to further the example of Jesus Christ. So let us begin in verse 18 with the example itself. For Christ also suffered. He is bringing us into the reality and the remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And then he lists for us what that suffering accomplished. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which then he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. We'll stop there. First and foremost, the sufferings of Jesus Christ led to 
what's called the, expo the, the expository of our sins, the expiratory, I should say, expiratory of our sins, the removal of them. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have been freed from our sins in and through the resurrection, I'm sorry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The moment Christ was on the cross, a period of darkness blanket the earth. And in that darkness, there were three things that occurred that would have occurred in our lives if Christ wouldn't have uh, uh, taken them on himself, sparing us from these consequences. And those things are, those three things are, first and foremost, the judgment had taken place. People who are apart from Christ today no longer have the understanding that they are walking under the weight of the wrath of God. They have no fear of God. They don't have any fear of God because the believers in today don't have a lot of fear of the Lord anymore. Today, believers don't seem to reverence the Lord as the Lord was once reverenced through his church. And therefore, why can we expect the world to fear the Lord and his wrath when the church no longer reverences him in the due fear that he has deserved. In that moment of darkness, as Jesus hung on the cross, a judgment was taking place that was uh, targeted for you and I because of our sins. But Christ bore that upon his shoulders as the wrath of God was poured out upon him for all the sins of the world. Secondly, what happened in that moment of darkness on the cross, that there was a separation as Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? There was a separation between God the Father and Jesus Christ that had never taken place prior to that point. Even in his earthly ministry, he still had a deep communion relationship with the Father until the point that the sins of the world were placed upon his shoulders for payment and the judgment of God was poured upon him and God the Father turned his back, unable to look upon the sin upon his son's shoulders and at that moment there was separation. Each and every one of us, before we came to Jesus Christ, we were destined for an eternity separated from God in a place that he created for the devil and his angels called hell. Christ weathered that separation for us to you and I who believe. And number three was death. As Jesus Christ did not die because of physical anguish, he died because he dismissed his spirit and at that moment, that death was the death that was due to us for the sin that we had carried within us. And now we can say, though we may die, we shall live in Christ. For the death of the believer is described in the New Testament as simply falling asleep. As we close our eyes here, we open them to the realities of heaven, and we are in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for all eternity. The punishment that was due to us was placed upon Christ at that moment that he hung on the cross. Which leads to our next point. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. Let us understand that this was eternally effective that nothing is going to change the sacrifice in which Christ is made on our behalf. As the Hebrew writer wrote, he said, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross is not something that needs to be repeated. It's eternally effective. Once and for all, he died for the sins, as it states here, once for sins. We need to understand that the sacrifice has been paid, and now we are to enjoy the new life in which it provides. 
This is something that we could not provide on our own behalf. It is something that Christ needed to provide for us and did so as the just uh, died for the unrighteous, as it says here, the righteous for the unrighteous. Christ was perfect in every way. Isaiah 700 years earlier stated very clearly that one was going to come who God considered perfect. And it was him that the sins of the world would be placed upon. And it was him who shall take away the iniquity of those who would come to him. The person of Jesus Christ was a substitutionary death on our behalf. This doctrine is being greatly challenged today, not by the world, not by the liberal Christian community, but those within the evangelical community who believe that penal substitution is a cruelty and God the Father would have never allowed his son to go through such agony. What father would allow his son to go through such a thing for another's behalf? A father who loves us would. The penal substitution of Jesus Christ is key crucial for our salvation. If it had not take place, that substitutionary death, we are still in our sins and we are still separated from God. Which leads us to our next point. That he might bring us to God. The, the term is reconciliation. And when we think of reconciliation today, we think of two people who were once together and now who are estranged Two people who possibly were married and then became divorced. And now a process of reconciliation has been implemented to bring those two people back together again. What a perfect word for you and I. Perfect in Adam and Eve. Then we, mankind sinned against God and we were separated from God. And now God is bringing us back to him through the person of Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 19 through 23, he said, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that is Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of, the, of his cross. And you, he says, Paul, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that which you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, am a minister. Reconciliation. Today, people who don't believe in God have this impression that God is their friend on their shoulders, etc. But the wrath of God would tell us differently. The Bible clearly tells us that one apart from God, one who is not in Christ, is at enmity with God. These are two opposing factions that need to be once again reconciled. And the only way to be reconciled back unto the Father is through the person of Jesus Christ. There is no other way whatsoever. Jesus said it this way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Paul stated this way, that we have one mediator between God and man, and that is the person, Christ Jesus. There is no other way for this reconciliation to take place between man and God apart from Jesus Christ. And this is the key element that separates him from every other religious system in the world. This reconciliation was only provided and possible through his death. The death of the cross was a violent experience. It wasn't a subtle death. It wasn't a simple death. It wasn't a pleasant death. It was a brutal crucifixion. Peter wants us to remember these things. And I believe our church needs to be reminded of these things. This violent death that allowed for this reconciliation needs to be remembered, especially for you and I who may find ourselves suffering or going through trouble or being persecuted 
for righteousness' sake. We are going to turn our backs on God unless we remember what God has done for us. And when you're confronted by the world and challenged by the world, and you have an opportunity to proclaim Christ faithfully and be rejected by the world and being persecuted by the world, or in that same moment of opportunity, you take the road more traveled and you deny Christ to maintain a friendship, to uh, bypass the persecution, to alleviate the tension of the moment. I ask you a question. Can you do so with a good conscience and remember what Christ has weathered for you? How can I deny my Lord and Savior knowing that he was subjected to a cat of nine times tails 39 times? that he was spit upon, that he was, uh, he was mocked by a horse blanket of purple being put upon him, a, a, a crown of thorns being shoved into his skull. How can I turn and run from a confrontation over his reality, over his existence, over his love, over his goodness, over his salvation of my soul? How can I run from that moment? simply because I don't want to be verbally criticized for what comes next. Shame on us. Shame on us. See, we, only, we don't only deny Christ at those moments, though. We deny Christ each and every time that we succumb to temptation, that we choose to sin rather than to walk in a godly manner, that we choose to live for ourselves rather than to live for the glory of God each and every time we deny Christ in doing so. And that shouldn't be. As Paul wrote, he said this in Philippians 2, 8 through 11, he says, and being found in human form, that is Christ, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then of course we climax with the resurrection. The resurrection as he was made alive in the Spirit, the same Spirit in which you and I have today that leads us, guides us, comforts us, enables us, provides for us, etc. This Spirit that rose Christ from the dead on the third day is the same Spirit that you and I have today to weather the storms of life that we may face. Today, we don't necessarily just experience persecution and deny Christ. I have found that many Christians, when they go through difficult times, deny Christ. And as a result, the world sees that denial, and they therefore have another reason to write off the Lord and His Word. When we go through difficulties, many today equate those difficulties with God's displeasure in their lives. They've been diagnosed with a, a terminal disease. They have, their uh, financial situation has fallen flat, whatever it may be. And at those times, instead of trusting God and glorifying God and running to God, they run from God, deny God, and blaspheme God. And yet, in it all, God wants to use this difficulty for an opportunity to show His glory. We then try to resist that moment, and in so doing, we deny He Himself. Peter then moves on as after we get to the resurrection, he'll talk more about that in a moment. But then he takes us into the tomb with Christ. Very interesting set of verses that we are going to look at, verses 19 and 20. 
two of the most difficult verses to interpret in the Bible, uh, and certainly two of the most difficult verses to interpret within 1 Peter. And after he was arisen, we know that the death of Jesus Christ did not eliminate his life. He then went into the ground for three days. He was not dead at that moment. He was still living. He was still existing, and now he's coming up and through the resurrection. And in that moment of time, Peter gives us this information, in which he went and, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were being brought safely through the water. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is this. When did this happen? When did Christ go and proclaim to these spirits in prison? Well, the most logical answer is in those three days. In those three days that he was in the belly of the earth. Some radical Pentecostal groups believe that Jesus Christ went into the grave at this moment, that he was tortured by Satan, that he, was, uh, he, he experienced the flames of hell and so forth. I radically den denounce that teaching. No, Christ didn't go into the grave to suffer at the hands of Satan. He went there first and foremost to, to proclaim to the, the spirits that were imprisoned. Number two, who are these spirits? Some believe that these are the individuals that watched the ark being built over the 120 years, and they denied the judgment that was coming, and therefore they suffered at the hand of that judgment, and only eight were spared, and that Jesus went down and proclaimed to them, those people, whatever he's going to proclaim, which we'll talk about in a minute. I find that inconsistent. I find that inconsistent for two reasons. Number one, why would that group of people specifically be targeted by Jesus for this proclamation? For people died after that, uh, before his crucifixion and resurrection. Why those particular people? But more importantly, I, 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 I reject that idea because it's inconsistent with what Peter says later on in 2 Peter concerning angels that have been imprisoned and Jude 6, which Jude and Peter were closely linked. Jude 6 tells us again that angels had been imprisoned. So who are these spirits in prison? I believe that these are the sons of God that did not uh, remain in heaven, but were fallen angels who in Genesis 6 saw the beauty of the, the male or the females of the human race, mated with them, and then the offspring were called Nephilim. I'm not going to get into all of that today, but I believe that these spirits have been imprisoned by God for their attempt to pollute the line in which the Christ was eventually going to be birthed. And I believe that the creation of the Nephilim were just as important to the judgment of God as the unrighteousness of man at that time. This seems to be more consistent, even though very fascinating, that Jesus, after the crucifixion, went in and proclaimed to these spirits in prison who had been locked up at the first earth, or I should say world totality of judgment. At the flood, only eight people survived. Everything else was wiped out. It says in the book of Revelation that these spirits will be released. And in the last seven years will create havoc, especially over the last three and a half years, will create havoc on this earth. But not only this, but extra biblical sources tell us the book of First Enoch, which is not a canonical book, it is nothing that we should look at as biblical authority, also agrees with this. So we have 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude, and that extra biblical that lean to the fact that these were the angels that fell at the time just before the flood in Genesis 6. 
So what did Christ proclaim to these fallen angels in prison in the belly of the earth? He won. It was a proclamation of judgment. The ultimate judgment of sin has taken place. You have failed. God has fulfilled his purposes in and through the Messiah, and their attempt to distort or to derail the plan of God as they waited earnestly for this one to come about. Christ proclaimed a proclamation of judgment equally as God was proclaiming a proclamation of judgment in those 120 years as the ark was being built and being preached to the world, Jesus now takes that message and states, it is finished once and for all. That seems to be the more consistent understanding, though fascinating, of the two probable interpretations. And so then moving through this, moving through this, he then comes to verse 21. His understanding of the judgment of the flood, he saw paralleled in the baptism of the individual. He says, now baptism, which corresponds to this, it's a word in the Greek, New King James got it really good right here. It's called antitype. So the word in the Greek should be, it says uh, here very clearly corresponds to this, or which is the antitype of this. Let me explain what an antitype is. When the New Testament writers were writing and they looked back into the Old Testament, they saw that there were types of things that have been now fulfilled in the purpose of a person of Jesus Christ, and they used them as illustrations going forward. However, though, an antitype is when a New Testament example has been given us of a spiritual truth. Baptism is an antitype. It means that we are openly proclaiming through the submersion into water and then being brought out of the water the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are proclaiming the death of our old life and the proclamation of our new life in Jesus Christ in and through baptism. Baptism doesn't save anyone. Baptismal regeneration is not a doctrine that we hold to that people believe that baptism saves a person. The thief on the cross was not baptized. He wasn't hanging there and then turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, remember me when you enter into paradise. And Jesus said, well, wait a minute. We got to baptize you before you can go. And there are other examples in the book of Acts. Baptism, baptism always follows a genuine proclamation of a new birth in Jesus Christ. One who gets saved is then baptized to demonstrate through this antitype of what is happening. My salvation means that I have died to my old life, being put back into the water, and I am now living in my new life, being brought out of the water in Jesus Christ. Of course, paralleling the death into the tomb, and then, of course, the resurrection on the third day. Peter sees the judgment of God producing new life. In the days of Noah, when the judgment of God came upon this world, he then saw those eight individuals spared within the ark, the ark itself being a type of Christ, carrying people to salvation through the judgment of God. He saw that mirrored and paralleled in what is now the antitype of baptism, baptism in the life of the believer. And this new life therefore brings about, as he says, which corresponds to this, verse 21, now saves you not as the removal of dirt from the body. This isn't an outward thing. It isn't something that washes your sins away, he is saying, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
the only manner in which a person's conscience can be good or cleansed is through the new birth in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we are always going to be under the weight of a guilty conscience before a holy God. 28 times in the New Testament, Paul wrote concerning the conscience of a man. And he always proclaimed that I have a good conscience before God. That conscience was maintained clear and clean by him dealing with sin in his life in an appropriate manner, not falling and succumbing to temptation. When stumbling, he repented, confessed his sins, and got back up again, maintaining that clear conscience before God. A conscience of the individual is an echo of the perfection that we once had in Adam that was ripped apart from us at the time of the fall. This conscience allows us to know right from wrong, and we appear to be the only portion of creation that is able to carry a conscience within us. And only one who is saved can experience a clean conscience, a good conscience before God. And that baptism represents that. When you got married, you stood before the Lord, before others, and you proclaimed to commit yourself one to another before God in marriage. That's also an anti-type. The real commitment, the real truth behind that ceremony isn't the ceremony itself, it's the commitment that is made within the individual to the individual. It is displaying something that is happening on the inward and is proclaiming it outwardly. That is what baptism is. It's showing something that's happened on the inside through an outward manner, allowing us to have a clean conscience before God, who has gone, in verse 22, into heaven, this is Christ, and currently is at the right hand of God, which is the, right, the place of power and, and the place of prominence within this, within this uh, heavenly realm. And notice again, all angels, authorities, and powers, all having to do with spiritual entities, having been subjected to him. Another indication that verse 19 and 20, I believe, are targeting the spirits who are imprisoned at the time of Genesis 6. Now, I want to roll right into verse 1 of chapter 4, because this is the application and I want all of us to read it. We spent detailed time in verses 18 through 21. Now let us look at this next portion. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he is now going to tell us how we should respond to that fact, that reality. First and foremost, we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We need to carry the same mindset in which Christ carried through that time. That mindset was not my will, but your will be done, Father. Christ did not live for the temporal pleasures of the moment, but for the eternal glory of God. This is the mindset. The mindset is that Christ humbled himself at this moment to allow God to take advantage of the opportunity that is God the Father to glorify himself through what Christ was about to do. Arm yourself. It's prepare yourself for battle. Prepare yourself for that point in time where you have this opportunity either to glorify God or to deny him before others. And he goes on to say, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Your suffering for righteousness sake has indicated that there's a new birth that has taken place within you and you are no longer living in the old life but in the new. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. I underline that. I am not living for myself any longer. I am living for Christ. As Paul says, it is not I, but Christ who lives through me. We need to deal with this, folks. It's not about me. It's not all about you. If we are truly followers of Jesus Christ, we have to understand this reality. 
It's not about my happiness. It's not about my temporal pleasure. It's about fulfilling the will of God that he has for me. Verse 3, he states, For in the time that has passed suffices for the doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality. He is saying that haven't you given enough time for the old life? Haven't you given enough time to sin? Don't treat this new life in the same manner that you treated the old life. You need not do so, but live now on for the glory of God. I got saved when I was 16. I personally feel that I already have given Satan too many years of my life. I'm not going to give him any more. And now in the reality of all that Christ has done for me, I am going to live for the glory of God to the best of my ability, being supported by his grace, by, supported by his mercy, by his love, because I no longer want to live for this myself and for the things of this world. As he goes on, the way Gentiles do, they live in sensuality. And this word sensuality is kind of an odd English word to use for the Greek word, which means without restraint. You have no moral restraint upon you. You do what is right in your own eyes. You do whatever you want, whenever you want it. And then he goes on to explain how that might look through passions and through drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. This is what an unbridled life looks like. He says, don't live this way any longer. And with respect to this, as you live for the glory of God, Peter writes to us, with respect to this, they, that is those in the world, are surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The word malign there is a word that we must understand. They're going to criticize you for this. They're going to ridicule you for this. They're going to exclude you. They are going to mock you for this type of behavior because in their mind, it makes no sense to postpone the pleasures of this world for an eternity with God. People who live to them, for themselves are stating in their hearts that they truly do not believe that there is a God. People who live for themselves are saying that this world is better than the world that is yet to come. Christians who have been swallowed up in compromise and carnality will discover that this world will leave them continuously empty time, time, and time again. You're not going to find what you're looking for in this world that you can only receive in God, in Christ. Individuals who are looking for relationships are not going to find those relationships within the world that they so desire. Those who are looking for fulfillment are not going to find that fulfillment in the world, that satisfaction, that love, etc. The world will eventually malign you and persecute you for this, but they will one day stand before a God who will hold them accountable, verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That is, the gospel saved individuals, those individuals died in their faith, that, through, that though judged in the flesh by the world, the way people are, he says, that they may live in the spirit the way God does. Those people who have already died for their faith in Jesus Christ, They've died so that they might live eternally with Christ. Which leads to our exhortation in verse 7, and we'll close with these words. Notice that when Peter talks about the end of all things, he simply states this, the end of all things is at hand. No date, no hour, it's just at hand. 
those words were, were Peter frankly stating in that manner in which he would have communicated at that time that the Lord could return at any moment. That's what he was saying. The end is at hand. John, Peter, Paul, James, they all lived in the immediate intim, uh, immediacy of the return of Jesus Christ. They believed that it could happen at any moment in their lifetime. They were warned as those people were warned that a storm is coming and they prepared themselves accordingly. You would think that after Texas was hit with that first hurricane, that those who were then warned in Florida that a hurricane was coming of equal or possibly greater strength would have been more diligent in some cases to prepare themselves for the upcoming storm. But unfortunately, many of them did not take that warning. They saw what happened in Texas. They saw what happened in Houston, a city that was not prepared, that did not believe that they were going to feel the effects of that hurricane. And yet when Florida was warned, many of them took a complacent, apathetic uh, position towards the up-and-coming storm. They minimized it. They dismissed it. Now, I've been to Florida numerous times. People live with hurricanes down there like they were almost a, a, a common experience, an everyday thing, and so forth. I understand that. They were somewhat desensitized to the possibilities of it. But when the storm finally hit, those people realized that they were completely and utterly unprepared for the damage in the wake of that storm. That's exactly the illustration that Peter is writing here. The people did not prepare themselves properly at the days of Noah. The end is at hand. And people now today need to properly uh, prepare themselves for the coming storm of the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 7, Therefore, the end of all things is at hand. And people at the end of their lives, when they realize that they are about to die, they do two things. They live with a sense of urgency and they live in a sense of simplicity. I believe those are two characteristics that should model a Christian's life. That we live in a state of urgency and that we live in a state of simplicity before the Lord because of his immediate return. As he says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Think clearly and act accordingly. That's exactly what he's saying here. Do so for the sake of your prayers. He wants us to continue in that communion relationship with God through prayer, even in this difficult time, and therefore we must think clearly and act accordingly. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as a good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that Christ, or I should say, God supplies, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Say it again. Ever. Amen. The example. The application. The exhortation. Do not be desensitized by what has just happened by another individual claiming the date of the end of the world. We do not live in peaceful times, do we? If it isn't the threat of North Korea, it's the natural disasters that loom, the economic uncertainties, the instability of the world around us and the global community. It is the advancement of nuclear weapons in the hands of rogue states, not only North Korea, 
But please, do not kid yourself. Do you not believe and understand that North Korea most likely has sold its technology to other people already? They have to fund this thing. We need to be aware we do not live in peaceful times. We do not live in a time where we can just sit back as Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. I believe the Lord could return for his church at any moment to take us out of here before the last seven-year great tribulation period begins. And at that moment, the Bible tells us that Israel will enter into an accord with one who is called the Antichrist. And for the first three and a half years of that period of time, there will be peace and prosperity around the world. There will seem and appear to be an economic solution, a political solution, a religious solution as we pool the monies of the worlds together, as a political uh, as a political society, we come under the direction of 10 nations as the whole world is subjected to the leadership of those 10 nations. The Bible says very clearly that at that time, the religious uh, differences of the world will start to all of a sudden mend and the prophecy of the bumper coexist will finally come to pass. But then it's too late. For the Bible says that at the midway period of that three and a half year mark, the one, the Antichrist, who brought about this political, religious, economic revival and prosperity appears to be assassinated and will appear to be dead. And then mysteriously, after three days, the Bible tells us, will rise again. See, Satan never creates anything. He only duplicates what God has already done. And after that moment of time, he'll rise again Satan will have entered him, the Bible tells us clearly, and the last three and a half years of that period will literally be hell on earth. But then Revelation 19 comes into play. And a great white horse, and one who rides on it, named Faithful and True, returns. King of kings, Lord of lords, and he is followed by a great cloud of witnesses also riding with him at that moment in time. That's you and I. If that's the triumph that we will experience with Christ at the end, shouldn't we be willing to suffer for him today because of all that he has done on our behalf? He is our ultimate example and therefore we must stand in Christ.